Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Well, for the last two and a half years, if you can imagine that, we have been studying the Gospel of John. We've given 67 messages, if you include the one that we're going to give today. That's a lot of material, so in many cases, we would call it the worm's eye view. In fact, I like to refer to it as driving throughout Oahu. You know, we go through the streets, and we might have a little bit of a hill to see something, but it's basically the worm's eye view of the island. But if you've been into the Aloha Tower downtown, if you go up to the top of the Aloha Tower... They would have the schematics up on the top observation area and that schematic would show you where various buildings were so that you would kind of look out but you could look down at the schematic and look back out again. Well today in the limited time that I have, I'll probably speak a little bit faster and hopefully not any longer, I'm going to give you what we're going to call the bird's eye view of the Gospel of John. Now I don't want to inundate you with a lot of little facts, I want to make sure that you understand this is for personal application for God to be uh, receiving all the glory from it. But I would like you to take out that little sermon note outline that I have for you because you're going to find the gospel, the gospel of John, in a nutshell as we go through all of this. What a wonderful time to get into God's Word and to learn these great truths. Now, while you're doing that, you might need to know that the writer of the gospel of John was John, the disciple. The author of the gospel of John is the Holy Spirit, God speaking in a sense through John, so that we have God's mind on paper and what John wanted us to know, what God wanted us to know through John for us today. John was one of the disciples. And out of the list of disciples, you're going to find three different groups, four guys in each group. But as the groups are given, they're always given in the same order, this group before this group and this group before that group. And the reason is because the top group, as it begins to kind of span out, means that they're a little bit closer to the Lord. A little bit more is recorded in Scripture. We know a little bit more about them. One writer says this is the group that was more intimate with the Lord. Well, John was a part of that group. Those of you that remember the teaching, especially in the Gospel of John, he never mentions his name, but he is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple who leaned on Jesus' bosom. Yet I want to warn you, some of you might have this picture of of John as being this wimpy little disciple who just kind of looks up at Jesus with these doughy eyes and one of these, he just loves these other men and things like that. I want you to know that he was called also the son of thunder. And the only time that John is mentioned by himself in Scripture, not in John but other places, he is actually bringing a scathing rebuke about other people to the Lord. And he was kind of angry when he did it. So he was a man of great passion. He was a man that knew the Lord. He was a man of conviction. So he was a man's man as well. We also know that he was part of the fisherman band. And those of you that go into fishing as an industry, especially in the Bible days, even though it's the Sea of Galilee, it was still the... Sea of Galilee, which means the waves could come up pretty rapidly. And so he was a man's man. And yet we know that he was with Jesus so much that he gave attention to details. So when you go through the Gospel of John, there are a lot of details that he'll put in there, including the number of fish at one time that they had brought in on a net, 153 of them. And not just 153 fish, 153 large fish. So he was a man that really knew what he was talking about. He gave attention to details, and he wanted us to know those details. But what I'd like to do is to remind you that when we launched our study, one of the things we did is we gave this book a theme. And different writers, different commentators will have their own theme for the book. But as I read through this numerous of times, I believe the best theme that would kind of capture the whole entity of this would be this. 
A belief for life. That's what it is. A theme is a belief for life. So you might want to write that down. The theme of the gospel is a belief for life. But that theme runs all throughout John, and it can be seen in about five different areas that we're going to be looking at here so that you can kind of capture what is going on. So the first one is seen in the very beginning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them up now to John chapter 1. Now, we're not going to read through the whole gospel. I urge you to do that. I implore you as my brothers and sisters in Christ that you take this outline that I've given to you, and I want you to read through the gospel of John and See how this outline that I'm giving to you falls uh, clearly through the Gospel of John to one more time cement this into your mind. So it begins with, in the beginning, in verse 1 it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. Drop down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh, Christ, and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, if you go to Matthew and you go to Luke, you're going to find that Jesus has a genealogy there. But since the main thought of the Gospel of John is that Jesus is God, there is no genealogy for God because there was nobody before God. Nobody begot God, so to speak. Nobody brought God into the world. He is God. He's the all-self-existent one. So there's no genealogy. So from the very beginning of this Gospel, the truth is established that Jesus is God. And so then through the rest of this, John is now observing the life of Christ, prompted by the Holy Spirit, for us to get facts about Jesus being God. But just being God wasn't all. Jesus being God also, that he is the Savior. So he's just not God. He's God who is performing. He's God who will now manifest himself in a way to reach out to us. Now watch. It's not still all about God for us, so we now become the center of all of this. It's all about God doing something for us, so we in turn give all the glory back to God for what he's done for us. So we become an object lesson of his grace, but we're an object lesson of his grace, so it's all about Him. So if you want to keep that in mind, I think it'll help you as you read through John. A lot of the conflicts that he had with all sorts of people was when he was 100% God, 100% man, 100% of the time. And so people had a tough time recognizing that in John, and yet all the time, Jesus was portrayed and was showing himself as who he was, as being God. Now, if you want to, you can go then to John chapter 1, beginning of verse 18, and go all the way through chapter 12, verse 50. Now, I know that's a big chunk of real estate of Scripture. So to do that, I'm going to hit the mountain peaks. Again, we're going to look at the bird's eye view of all of this and kind of see what's out there, not all the little details. But this might help you. So how is he seen? Well, besides the one-on-one with some of the guys early on as he was selecting his disciples and putting his team together, he then went into the crowd. So he moved from the individuals. And yeah, there were sometimes he met with different people, but there were a lot of crowds being around at the time. And in the crowds, he really moved about. What did he do with the crowds? Well, with the crowds, he met with them, he healed them, he ministered to them, he taught them, he touched them. He did all of that for a bigger reason. And that bigger reason was that he could make a difference in people's lives for all eternity so that God the Father, whom he had given back to, as a gift for the glory of God. So he was doing that in the lives of various crowds. Now to do that, he did it in three different areas with the number seven. There were seven signs, there'll be seven I am's and seven people. Now as I go through those seven, there'll be a little bit of detail in there, but I want you to kind of lock into this train of thinking because I'm going to show you a bigger picture with these seven to show you what God is doing while using seven here. So first of all, seven signs. I guess the question we would ask ourselves, what is the purpose of a sign? Why do we have a sign of anything? Well, a sign is to be used to point to something. 
Sometimes we'll have people want to know where the offices are here on our campus, and so they kind of look for some door, and there's a sign there, basically offices are upstairs. And I know that all of you, if you don't care where the offices are, you do care for one thing, and that is where's the sign that says men's room, or where's the sign that says ladies' room? And you want to make sure you don't get those signs mixed up. Signs point us to something. Well, the signs that we're going to look at in just a moment are important signs, because all of those signs we're going to see actually points us to the fact that Jesus is God, and not just God, but that Jesus is God in charge. So he's not only God, but he's also in charge. And the greatest thing that he's in charge of is that he's going to take what problems that we have, give us peace to go through them, and often eliminate them. And the greatest problem we have, he he extinguishes that, which would be hell for us if we trust Christ as our personal Savior. And so those are the purposes of signs. Now some of you You might need to know this as a little side note. In Scripture, you're going to hear the term signs and wonders. I want to throw another word in there because there's another word that is often swimming around those two concepts where the Lord does signs and wonders. That third word is the word power. And the reason I want to put that in there because it all kind of fits together. Signs are supernatural events that are done by the Lord to reveal something. So that's a supernatural sign. It goes beyond nature to do that. A wonder is something else. A wonder isn't so much of a sign as much as it is the reaction to the people seeing the sign, and it's often amazement. It's wonder. Have you ever been someplace where some kind of, a, I don't know, a, we'll call him a magician. He's not really a magician, but an illusionist. And he does something big, chops this lady in half and all that. You've seen that kind of stuff. And when they do that, the reaction of the crowd is usually what? Ooh. Ah. Have you ever been to the circus? I grew up in a home. We never went to the circus, never did carnival kind of stuff. My family was just different. So when I got married and Carol then for one of my birthdays, she says, you've never been to the circus. So she surprised me by getting our friends together all in one big van, and she took us to the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. I'll tell you, I was like a little kid trying to watch everything going on in this three-ring circus. This person did that, and that group did this, and I kept going, ooh and ah. That's the reaction when a sign was done by the Lord, the amazement. That's the wonder. But now the reason I put the word power in there is that none of those signs and the reaction of the people with wonder could not be done apart from the supernatural power of God. So going back to this passage... John is showing that Jesus is the one who is God because he is demonstrating that power to do that sign to point people back to himself to reveal that he is God and the reaction should be wonder and amazement. With some it was. Others it was just kind of quietness and there were a whole lot of people that wanted to throw rocks at Christ not so much for the sign that he did but for the fact that he did it on a day that they didn't like. And so again, there was still reactions when he did those particular signs. Now if you look here, look at those signs I put here in Scripture, the seven of them. He turned water into wine. We sang about that this morning. He healed a nobleman's son. He healed a man of Bethesda. He fed the 5,000. He walked on water. He healed the blind man. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Now when you look through this, it's kind of interesting. There may even be a pattern in here. Now Scripture says, even in John, that there were so many miracles that even John himself couldn't record them all. So that must mean these that were recorded were prompted by the Holy Spirit to be recorded. So there's a pattern there. So maybe some of you that are some Bible scholars, you might want to read through that and try to see if there is like a, quote, secret code in this little pattern. It starts out with something a little simple with turning the water into wine. Now that may be real big because none of us can do that. I get that. I get that. 
But it ended with something that was humongous, and that was taking a man who was dead, 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 dead. In fact, he was so dead, his family thought he stunk he was dead so long. All right? And Jesus took that dead guy and gave him life again. So that's the sign that he did, again, showing that he himself was God, and he could do that. I've used the phrase here dozens of times, again revealing through signs, the response of wonder through his power, that he is large and in charge, and he can do that. So what you're going to take away from this is that these signs to you, although they're recorded in Scripture, this is telling you that Jesus is God. Jesus is in charge. He can do what he wants, when he wants, whether he does it through prescription or permission. He's still the one who holds all of that. And he does it because he's showing you that there's no problem too big that he can't deal with in your life. And that's why it's important for you to really know him. So that's the sign. Seven I am's. The next blank would be the I am's. The seven I am's. I like when I look at that because it's not the seven I was or the seven I will be. It's the seven I am's, meaning that he's this way today. Tomorrow he'll be this way tomorrow. Because he, wherever he is, he's everywhere present. He is wherever you are right now. Right now. Right now. Right now, you get it now? The seven I am. So that means no matter where you are, what time of day it is, no matter what time in your personal history, under God's schematic for your life, because you were in his mind before you were in your mother's womb, he was an I am to you. And he's always present. He is always there. And he never changes. So if we go up and down with our confidence, our joy, and all of that, the problem isn't with him. He never changes. He never moves. And here are the seven I am's. Now, I've listed the scripture here. Let's see if you could remember what those seven I am's are. Some of you I can see already flipping through your Bible is filling the blanks before I even get there. Well, let's got to do it together for those of you that don't have your Bible with you today. So he says uh, the seven I am's. First of all, I am the bread of life. Well, primarily that means that whatever your need is, he is there to meet your need daily. And once you partake of him, you'll never, in a sense, thirst again. You'll never need that food again because he will satisfy you every single day. He is the bread of life. The second one is, I am the light of the world, which means that he is the light of the direction. He's the one that gives purpose and meaning to the world and that through him, he has his whole being and we have it in him. Number three, he says, I am the gate. Now, that's an interesting word. He says, I am the gate, and it's in the context of shepherding, and there's a gate there. Well, what would happen is, if you remember, the flock would go out during the day, but at night they would try to bring the flock in, and then when they brought them into the sheepfold, there would be a place for a gate. In this case, often, when there wasn't a gate there, the shepherd himself would lie down in the entranceway where the gate would be so that the sheep would stay in, and he would be there for primarily one reason, and that is to protect the flock to give his life for the flock so that the flock would be salvaged or saved. Now, isn't that a message for you and me? That Jesus Christ would give his life for you and me and he would lay himself down for us so that we would not be harmed eternally by Satan himself. So, he is the gate. And then it says he is the good shepherd. I like that term, shepherd, in that context because the shepherd's job is also to provide us peace and comfort and nurturing besides protection, to feed us, to make sure that we will grow up and grow strong and be reproducers of other Christians, so to speak. So he's the good shepherd. In other places of Scripture, other writers not only refer to him as the good shepherd, they also say Jesus is the chief shepherd. And not only the chief shepherd, he's also the great shepherd because he is our shepherd. If some of you would like to read more about that, I encourage you to read Ezekiel chapter 32, 33, 34, and into 35, and you're going to see the indictment that the prophet puts upon 
the Jewish leaders for not being the shepherd of the sheep that they're called to take care of and then reminds them that through David and Christ that they are the shepherd. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. And then we have number five, the resurrection and the life. And I'd like you to turn to John 11. John 11. John 11. He is the resurrection and the life. I received a text message from one of our folks here in our church last night and said that they're not going to be able to be here today. They're going to be alongside some other people that seem to be experiencing what might be some satanic activity or at least some oppression that's in their life. Now, I don't know for a fact that that's the case. I just know for the fact that this family is trying to do something to minister to them, to bring a sense of joy and victory in their life. And so I shot them a a text message back and I said, I would be praying for them. I'm alongside them. I'm available to help them no matter what they might be going through with this other family. And I said, but I want to leave you with a verse. And if I could only leave you with one verse, I want to leave you with John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. And I encourage you to share that verse and teach that verse to the people you're working with. Now, why am I telling you that part? Because Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life, so that means he has power over death, he has power over life, that he is king of kings, lord of lords, that means no other power there other than Christ. And watch this, when you draw close to the Lord, Satan will flee from you, so if you're putting forth the Lord God Christ of scripture in front of them, there's supernatural stuff that's going on that we can't even fully understand nor explain in scripture. So John eleven twenty five and 26. I especially use this at every single memorial service that I preach. Now, if I do a graveside service, I save it for that. If I'm not called upon to do a burial service, I will somehow weave it into my presentation during the memorial service. And Pastor Dennis and I are blessed to be asked many, many times to speak at services, whether they're Buddhist or Catholics or Mormons or nobody, so to speak, no religion, we will still stand strong with a very tender and gracious way to put forth what the Christian faith believes for salvation. And our confidence is that salvation is the Lord, not of man. If we give the word in love correctly, God will take over and do what he wants with them. And this is the passage we use. Let me show it to you. John 11, verse 25. Again, the I am. Jesus said to her, who did he speak to? He spoke to Martha. What was the occasion? Lazarus, his good friend, their relative died, and they're grieving. And so he now speaks to them at a burial service, so to speak, because Lazarus was in the ground. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. I like that, the resurrection. That means I know what death and life is all about. I know what death and coming back to life is all about. I am the resurrection of life, although he has not resurrected yet. He is the author of it. He is the person of it. He is the source of it. He is the presenter of it. He says, I am the resurrection, but he also says, I am the life, which means after you're resurrected, there's life forever and ever. Now, with Lazarus, when Lazarus would come back from the dead, I want you to know Lazarus still died. But it is my belief that Lazarus then when he died, he still died in the faith even the second time. He's the resurrection of life. And then Jesus goes on to say, he who believes in me. It doesn't say he who behaves. It doesn't say he who believes and behaves. It doesn't say he who believes. It says he who believes in me. Those three words are critical. Believe in me. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Now, you ought to see how people look at me at the graveside service of someone of another religion or cult or whatever they are when I'm talking about, even though you die, you live, and how does this all fit here together? I don't understand. And so I simply use an illustration, and they all get a chuckle out of it, but I think this illustration still speaks. So the question is, how can you still live even if you die when I'm looking at a dead body there? 
Well, first of all, we who are Christian know that if you trusted Christ, you're absent from the body, you're present with the Lord. So not only is that person not even in his body, not putting that person in the grave or in the crypt if they've been um, cremated, that person's already long gone. The moment their heart stopped beating and they were dead, dead, they're gone, okay? Eternal life if they're saved. Eternal damnation if they're not. So I'll tell them the story about my wife. How do I bring in my wife? I usually say, you have to know my sweet wife, Carol. She's got a lot of humor and she likes to do little word pictures to help us understand. And I can see that some of you are scratching your head right now. How can someone live even though he's dead? I, I don't get all that. I said, my wife says that should I die before her, and you all are looking at this casket, if you should even come, she would lean over to the person next to her and say, hey, psst, psst, psst. see that? That's just the shell. The real nut's gone. <laughs> and that's really true. And by then, see how I got a little chuckle out of this? Even those folks that had never seen me before except for the service, they will laugh as well. And they get the message. Even though we die, the shell is gone, but the real us will live on because we're made up of body, soul, and spirit. Soul, spirit exists forever, heaven or hell. Body, yeah, it's dead. It's gone. Go back to the passage. I am the resurrection, not I will be, or I was, I am. That means today he's the resurrection of life. Tomorrow he's the resurrection of life. 2,000 years ago he was then, as he is now, the resurrection of life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me. That's the key. If you're alive, that's when you do your believing in him. You will never die. Yeah, body croaks, it dies. You, you believe this. And when I end my message, and they don't have any Bibles in front of them, I tell them, I'm going to now give to you the verse that is chiseled above the archway of the walkway that goes to George Washington's monument in Mount Vernon. Wikipedia, the thing, if you want. And it's chiseled up there. Now, whether Washington himself had it done or whether a family member had it done afterwards, I don't know that fact. I do know that this verse is chiseled up there. What is not up there are all the words, but the address is there. Now, we know that Washington was a man of faith. No particular denomination, Baptist, Methodist, we don't know none of that stuff. All we do know is he was a man of faith. That verse was selected. I wonder, 33,000 Bible verses, and he picks two. And what two? And so they're all, what is it? I am the resurrection and the life. And then I say this, and I'm saying it to you, my dear friends. The last four words are framed into a question that Jesus wanted Martha to answer that George Washington might have wanted us to answer and all of you that are listening at this special time we need to answer this it ends by this do you believe this huh believe what that Jesus is the resurrection and the life even though you're dead you will live he who believes in me will never die now, that's the great I am. And these are parts of the sevens that he's giving. So we have the seven signs, the seven I am. So we go to the resurrection and the life. He moves into the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. And then the final I am is the true vine. And I love that. That means when he's the true vine, that means that if I abide in him, I will have my life today, my fulfillment of life, my fruit and fulfillment for this life, for his glory, as I abide in him. I'll talk more about that in a moment, but for right now, I wanted you to see this divine. This is so very, 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 very precious. 
Now let's look at it again for review. You have the seven signs that point to who Jesus is, that he is large and in charge, he is God, that he commands, and that he can take care of whatever problem that we have. Then the second set of seven I am's, the seven I am's here, that's referring to all things wrapped up around Jesus Christ, more predominantly around him and the relationship that he has with anyone who would believe in Christ, either for salvation or to abide in belief in him for, as a Christian for the rest of their life. So now he moves from who he is to what he is doing for anyone that's out here to the third set of I am's would be the people. Now again, can you identify these people? And I didn't give you the verses, but can you identify who they were? Now you want to pay attention. I'm going to go through this quickly now. Who was the person that said, He must increase, but I must decrease? It was John the Baptist. Then, you must be born again. To whom did he say that? He said it to Nicodemus. Number three, the living water. Who did he present himself as the living water? He presented it to the Samaritan woman. The man who took Jesus at his word. Who finally just said, you said it, Lord, I'm going to do it. All right, that was the official at that time, one of the officials of the area. Number five, do you want to get well? He spoke that to the man who was paralyzed at the well, I mean at the pool. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us Make It Clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.